Thank you, guys. Good morning, church. If you will take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. I know that I'm young and I've got many things to learn, but one of the things that I have learned well is that coming back to the real world is not always fun. For many of us, we've enjoyed a few days off for Thanksgiving. Perhaps you had a couple days off work. Perhaps you had extra time with your family and your loved ones and uh, have enjoyed some time. But then tomorrow is Monday. And tomorrow, if you've been off, is going to be the longest day you have had all month, maybe, maybe all, all year. The longest Monday ever, because tomorrow is, is, back to, is back to reality. Several months ago, my wife and I took our, our girls down to the beach for a little family vacation. And uh, we, we tried to take advantage of the off-season rates and, and go down in the fall. And so we were really surprised at the condo that we, that we ended up with. We were pleasantly surprised by how nice it was. It, it, was, uh, it was basically brand new and it had been decorated by a professional decorator. Guys, did you know that they have professional decorators, right? The, the decorations in this place, I'm pretty sure cost more than the home that I reside in. It was incredibly it was incredibly nice, and, and I remember, you know, we had a great time, and I remember that day when, when we came home, and uh, you know, after four days at the beach, we walked into to our home, our 20-year-old home, which we love and are very happy to be in, but all of a sudden, man, those baseboards are dirty, <laughs> you know? Man, I need to repaint those, or man, I need to replace that, that old brass doorknob, or why do all these doors stick, or why don't we have six-inch crown molding, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff, and, and uh, it was, it was back to that real-world shock, which can be really startling, especially if you're not prepared for it, so you're all prepared for tomorrow, um, but we've got some other things to, to think about. Well, for some of you, you may be experiencing uh, a strong dose of reality in your spiritual life this week. Last week, we said goodbye to the uh, Life Action team, which, which came and led our church and served us in revival services for, for eight days. And, uh, and, you know, during Life Action, for those of you who attended, wasn't it refreshing to, to set that, side of time, that time aside and to, to have something a little bit different? You know, we heard hours and hours of uh, creative teaching. We saw skits. There were artists on stage, you know. We even got to eat M&M's in church. Wouldn't that be cool? Sorry, there's no, no M&M's today, and you missed it if you, if you weren't here. No M&M's in church, you know. The music was different. The, the stage was different. The lights were different. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And now they're gone, right? They're, they're gone. The, and, and the blessings that, that they brought, were, it wasn't just by way of entertainment. I mean, that was nice. But, you know, there were other blessings. For, for some of us, we, you know, we cleared our schedules to make time to, to be at these meetings. And we were at church so much that we barely had time for our normal lives, right? Like, anybody miss some meals because of life action services? I, I did. Um, and instead of two or three hours of Bible teaching and Bible exposure each week, for those of you who were at all of the services, you had about 25 hours of Bible teaching 
during the week. So not only were we away from some of our normal temptations of our, of our regular life, but we were getting fed so much, so much Bible, and it makes a difference. But now we're back to normal. We didn't even have a Wednesday service this, this past week. And you might be feeling a little bit let down. The band's gone. There's not an artist on stage this morning. There's, I don't have a $60,000 big screen behind me. You know, we, and instead of Steve and Jimmy up here speaking, you're, you're stuck with me. Talk about a letdown. You don't, even, you don't even get marked today. You got that associate pastor guy, you know. But I wonder how your weeks have been. We've been challenged with full hearts to, to grow and respond to God in, in many different ways. Even if you weren't at most of the services, even if you were just with us on Sunday, we were charged to respond to God. How's it going for you? Did you seek out forgiveness for that person that you have been dealing with bitterness with? Are you still having your holy hour? Are you still praying and talking to the Lord or just posting about it on Facebook? How's your marriage going? Are you still praying with your wife? How many times this week have you called out, God, I need you? Or are you back to grumbling? Did you share the gospel with that family member that was lost or did you choke? What about those of you who last week repented of your sins and gave your life to Christ and were saved, how, how do you feel today when the screen is gone? Do you feel close to the Lord? Or do you feel a little bit of a life action letdown? Well, folks, I'm happy to say that I'm here today to tell you that Christian vitality, that fellowship with God and the desire for holiness, that does not just have to be for special occasions. That's what God intends for normal, everyday Christian life. Yeah, they took their screen and their band with them, but the folks at Life Action, they didn't take any of the presence or the power of God away from us. The only folks that can do that are you and me. Some of us have spent months preparing and praying and waiting for this season, this week of renewal in our church. And, and some of us were praying for the church and some of us were praying that personally that God would revive and restore our hearts. And for many of us, I trust and believe that, that he did. The week came and now it's gone. So now what? We spent all this time and all this prayer and all this effort seeking revival, but how do we keep revival? Well, that's what I'd like to talk with you about this morning. How do you keep revival? If you're a guest with us this morning, perhaps you're here for visiting uh, family for Thanksgiving. We're glad that you're here. Uh, today's a little bit different for us. Normally what we do is Mark or I stand up here and, and walk through one text. And so today will be a little bit different because I would like to offer to you this week uh, five reflections on what God has been teaching and working and doing in the life of our church over the last few, few weeks. I've spent a lot of time this week trying to process all of the information that, that we heard and, and to digest some of that. And, and so I've come up with just a couple summaries uh, that would perhaps help for those of you who weren't here, who missed some of the services, and, and to remind those of you who, 
who were here. So five pastoral reflections on what we heard last week with an aim towards keeping revival, keeping revival. I really appreciate what Steve and uh, what Steve said on this subject. It was, I wrote it, jotted it down. It was something along the lines of, do you want to know how to keep revival? The answer is the exact same way you found revival. Being near to God is not magic. It's obedience. It's obedience. And this is what we are called to in the Christian life, a life of obedience. The reflections that I have for you this morning, they really could be uh, just taken as an extended meditation on this passage here in, in 1 Peter. So that will be the main text for us this morning. And we've got it up on the screen, but I'd like for you to, to read with me and follow along as I read from 1 Peter chapter 1, just two stunning, powerful, overwhelming verses. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Will you pray with me to this holy God? Father, as we come before you this morning, we come with expectations that are far greater than any human effort or obedience could accomplish. We need power. We need grace. So, Father, would you accomplish what you intend in our lives? Would you soften our hearts, and would you speak to us? I pray, Father, that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and just be forgotten, because we don't hear, we don't need to hear from a man. We need to hear from you. So speak to us, we ask, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Four or five, depending on time, reflections on what God has been doing in the life of our church in the last few weeks. One of the first things that we have noticed, one of the first things that God has taught us is that God does not entrust his glory to impurity. God does not entrust his glory to impurity. God will not entrust his glory to an impure people, to an impure heart, or to an impure church. We have for so long enjoyed the Bible's true and marvelous teaching about the grace of God that we may be in danger of forgetting the Bible's demand for holiness. Many of us, I'm afraid, experience so little Christian power in our lives because we've neglected the call to live holy lives as followers of Jesus Christ. The Bible from beginning to end makes it clear that the God we serve is both terrifically and terribly holy. And that this God, this God we worship, this God insists that his people be like him. You shall be holy for I am holy. This week we're reminded that as a church that the way that we experience vibrant Christian lives, the way we experience revival is through obedience, through personal holiness. We, we're reminded that we must approach the Lord with clean hands. This past week I was talking with my father-in-law who is an avid gun collector and he wanted to show me one of, his, one of the favorite pieces, or one of his most recent favorite pieces in his collection, 
Uh, he probably didn't remember he showed it to me a couple times, and I'm happy to see it, happy to see it again. But uh, so he took me into a back room where he had, had kept this uh, locked, about medium-sized wooden box, and it was a beautiful box. It was polished, and the top had been, uh, there's a, a, an, an eagle that was carved into the lid of this box. And he lifted up the lid, and, and before we did anything else, he stopped me, and he handed me a pair of white cotton gloves. And so we each took these, these white cotton gloves, and, and we put them on, and, and once we had our gloves on, I realized, you know, what, what, was, what was going on. He, he reached into the blue leather that, that held the gun, and, and he pulled out a special edition American Eagle Colt 45, which apparently is important because it was in a box, right? And one of the things that made this piece unique, I mean, it was a beautiful piece to look at, was that it had this large American eagle that was engraved in 24 karat gold running all the way down the barrel and then all the way around the back of the stock and up the other side of the barrel towards, towards the muzzle. And the wings stretched all the way down. And as I admired this, this collector's item in my white gloved hands, he explained to me how he had recently attended a gun show where in order to get into the show, they issued a pair of these white cotton gloves. You had to wear them to get in because no guns were gonna be held by mere human, human hands. Now, I realized this was not an unreasonable request because even though I had just washed my hands before dinner, I mean, I understand that there's naturally occurring oils on my hands and that I'd accumulated dust and some germs and uh, a moderate amount of toddler snot since dinner. And, and so even though my hands were generally clean, the white gloves reminded me that we're dirtier than we think. We're dirtier than we think. You see, many of us consider ourselves, perhaps, perhaps we consider ourselves to be good church folks, right? We come to church regularly, we might drop some money in the offering plate, we might volunteer or be in some church activities, but we don't take personal holiness seriously. Instead of comparing our lives to the standards of God, we settle. We are content instead to compare ourselves not to God, but to the folks around us. And we usually pick easy targets, right, to compare ourselves ourselves too, at least those who, who aren't quite as holy as us. Instead of measuring our lives by the impossibly high standards of the God of the Bible, we just lower the bar a little bit to something that's more reasonable, something that's more attainable, and we settle for some sort of Trinity-approved cultural holiness. As long as we're not committing the big sins, we think, or as long as we keep up appearances, or as long as we're here, and, you know, we consider ourselves to be, to be all right. That's not how the Christian life works. That's not an option for us. We don't get to decide what an appropriate level of holiness in our lives is. That's, that's God's prerogative. And we've been reminded this week that the enjoyment of God's glory, friends, if you're a Christian and you've never known real happiness in the Christian life, it's there. It's there. It's there for the taking. For the enjoyment of the glory and the goodness of God, it is exclusive. It is for those, it's reserved only for those who approach the Lord with clean hands 
and a pure heart. Now, there's really two sides of of this truth. And in the one sense, you know, the Bible teaches that, that God's holiness is, is, is at such a high standard that there is no way that you could get there. Our sinfulness is so great and his holiness is so holy that there is no way that you could just clean your life up enough to get to God. That's not, that's not how it works. We need a Savior. We joyfully proclaim at Trinity, in, your, in this pulpit, you will hear week after week that the hope of life is for a Savior, that we are sinners, and the only way to be made right with God is through the Savior. The only way to dwell with Him is through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, that by faith and repentance we can be brought near to the Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. The atoning blood of Christ is applied only to those who place their faith in Christ and repent of their sins. This repentance is what we kind of get hung up over a lot, isn't it? It's what we often lose sight of. This repentance, which is a turning away from sin, it's not something that Christians just do once when, you know, when, when a show's in town or, or at some special camp as a kid. Or, it, it's, it's not something we do once. Repentance is the daily work of the Christian life. Because we recognize that even though God draws near to sinners through the person of Jesus Christ, we recognize that God's power is only manifested in the clean life. God's power is manifested in a clean life. Isaiah 57 verse 15 reminds us of this truth that, that God, though he dwells in heaven, he also dwells with the humble and the lowly of spirit. For thus says the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. We reminded last week that we will not enjoy rich relationships with the Lord until we take personal holiness seriously. There's no, there's no way around it. Holiness is not an optional component of the Christian life that's reserved for pastors or serious Christians. It's, it's required. If you want to follow Christ, it is the cost to strive for holiness. We're reminded without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What a terrifying reminder. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But there's another lesson that we learned over these last few weeks. A second thing is this, is that God is watching every part of our life, and he wants it all. God is watching every part of our lives, and he wants control of it all. The Christian cannot, does not have the option to live a compartmentalized life. God demands everything. And last week, if you, were, if you participated with us and if you had an open heart, God pried his way into our marriages and our finances and our relationships and our internet habits, everything. And it's not just the big stuff that God wants, the big stuff that he cares about, but God wants and cares about every single aspect of our lives. He cares about 
our speech, our motives, our thoughts, our secret attitudes. God wants every word, every syllable, every phrase, every penny, every dollar, every minute. He wants all of our love, all of our affection. He wants exclusive worship. He wants it all. He demands it all. In our speech, we, we cannot have an unforgiving spirit and be right with the Lord. It's not an option. If you're grumbling and grumpy against someone in your Sunday school class, if there's someone that you don't talk to, you can't have a right relationship with the Lord. We saw that last week. It's not an option. If you, you cannot have a dead prayer life and have a right relationship with the Lord. You cannot neglect, Dad, your responsibility to, to care and disciple and discipline your children and have a right relationship with the Lord. We can't harbor bitterness or pride or stubbornness and have a right relationship with the Lord. We can't complain. We can't be impatient. We can't gossip and be right with the Lord. God wants everything. Everything. It seems like we examined every aspect of our lives and left nothing uncovered. I heard one person say this, it's like God came into my life and blew everything up in order to rebuild it the way that he wants to build it. It's a great explanation. We as a church have been reminded that personal revival is not some mystic miracle that we sit around and hope that God will send. Personal revival is a matter of total obedience. Partial obedience doesn't count. That's, that's disobedience. God demands total obedience. And so the partially examined life is the unexamined life. So church, let me let me ask you this morning, even if you weren't here with us during the services, that's fine. Let me ask you this morning, would you examine your hearts? Is there any part of your life that you're holding back from God? We've all got something. What, what is that thing that even as I'm speaking now, perhaps the Spirit is graciously bringing up to your mind? And you might be pushing it back because you don't want to deal with it. But what is that part of your life that you have not been willing to give to the Lord? Is there some sort of category, some sort of habit, some sort of routine, something that, that you have been hesitant to examine because you're afraid that the cost of obedience is just going to be too high? It's just too expensive. It's just too painful. I, just, I can't admit that to that person. What is, what is the part of your life that you're holding back from the Lord? When you came in this morning, you should have had a small index card or a small white piece of paper that is on your chair. I would, I would encourage you to grab that now. We're going to try to participate and respond uh, to the service this morning. If, if you can't find it, that's fine. Grab your bulletin or pull out your phone. Uh, we, don't, we don't need that screen yet, guys. Um, pull, out, pull out that card and grab a pen. If you don't have one, that's okay. You can, you can do this mentally, but I encourage you to, to, to write this down. I've asked you this morning to examine your life and to consider what is the one main thing that God is showing you that you're holding back from him. Would you just write down one word to describe that? You may not even be exactly sure what you need to do about it, but would you write down that one word? If you're scared to write the whole word, write the first letter. Write something down and acknowledge the area that you may be struggling to hold back from the Lord. Perhaps it's an area that you're struggling to obey God and and you think that God is calling you to obey. It could be your marriage, something in your marriage. It could be something in your thought life. 
or purity. It could be something financial or something relational, a person you need to talk to, a, a, an authority that you're failing to respect. Wh- whatever it is, write, write that thing down. What I've learned in times like this is that a lot of times, the first thing that comes to your mind, a lot of times, that's what the Lord is, is revealing to you. So, so write, write that down. You see, the Bible reminds us that half-hearted efforts in the Christian life don't get us very far. God is not interested in half of our hearts. You will not find God seeking him with half of your heart. In Jeremiah chapter 29, we have this on the screen. Jeremiah 29, 13, God tells his people that you will seek me and you'll find me if you seek me with all your heart. God is not content with half or two-thirds or three-fourths of our hearts. He wants all. Pastorally, I have a sense that one of the primary ways that God was working in our lives was to reveal to us individually that we're much more sinful than we thought. Did anyone have that experience last week? I I did. Uh, Much more sinful than we thought. But that's not bad news because sinful people need a savior. And the greater the sense of our sin, the greater the beauty of the savior. We may have discovered that we're more sinful than we thought, but we also discovered that we need a savior much more than we thought. God humbled us and broke us. And for those of you who responded to the Lord with soft hearts, and we all responded differently. I'm not using blanket statements here. Some of us had hard hearts and didn't care. Some intentionally skipped. Some couldn't come. Some came eager to hear and eager to respond. We all have different degrees of softness in our heart. But to whatever degree that we responded to the Lord, we saw that we must yield our self-wills to God. Like a stubborn horse that finally is broken by his master. We must submit the direction of our lives and our wills to be led by another master. You cannot walk with God with a strong will and a proud heart. It's not an option. The Bible teaches us that God dwells with and then gives himself not to the proud, not to the accomplished, but to the broken, to broken people who cry out for help. Brokenness always begins as we see and begin to acknowledge and admit our need for grace and to agree with God about our sins. This will, it has to produce some degree of, of sadness in, in, our, in our heart. It's a, it's a sadness that the Bible calls godly sorrow, which is the first step of repentance and can lead us as we obey towards a changed life. Another word for this is humility. Humility, seeing ourselves as we are, which is the key to releasing God's grace and God's power in your life. If you're experiencing little power in your Christian walk with God, it's because you're proud and you don't think you need him and you're not depending on him and you're not seeking him and submitting to him. The key to releasing God's grace in our life is humility. James 4 reminds us of this, that that God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, right? I think we heard that he stiff arms the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Brokenness is where revival 
begins. And as we heard last week, we can either fall, we can throw ourselves on Christ the rock, which will mean brokenness, or we will be crushed by the rock. And some will not recover. True brokenness is what attracts the attention of the Lord. The Bible teaches that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Church, the key to finding and the key to maintaining revival in your life is to find brokenness, to find the way of humility, to recognize that you are poor and needy before the Lord. Without this poverty of spirit, you will not and you cannot know the blessing of the Christian life, and you may not be a believer in Jesus Christ. But there's a third lesson that we, that we learned. We learned that God is calling to us in our circumstances. C.S. Lewis put it, God is often shouting to us in our circumstances, especially pain. More specifically, we've seen that God makes suffering mandatory in the Christian life. Even though the Bible teaches us that we are guaranteed to suffer, that all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, that suffering must come into our lives, we're never prepared for it. It always seems to catch us off guard, to kick our feet out from under us. To, it's always jarring and, and alarming. And one of the things that we've been reminded of about this is that suffering in its very nature leaves us with so many unanswered questions. So many unanswered questions. God doesn't tell us when it's going to be over. He doesn't tell us why some seem to suffer more than others. He doesn't tell us why and what he's doing. He doesn't explain the particulars of our circumstances. But he does tell us why. He does tell us why we must suffer. For the Christian we know that since Christ suffered, we too must follow in his footsteps in order to be made like Christ. The Christian is called to suffer to be made like Christ. Suffering is not some cruel, divine joke that God's playing on you. Suffering is the number one tool in the hands of God to make us like Christ. We got another text up on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're reminded that for this, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, what does that mean? He's now leaving you with an example of how you're supposed to suffer, that you might follow in his footsteps. We identify with the sufferings of Christ and we learn to suffer the way he did, without a word of complaint. The great promise for the believer is not that we will avoid suffering. The great promise of the believer is that we will not is not that we will see healing all the time or the restoration of whatever we have lost. We don't have a promise that God is going to immediately deliver us out of our difficulties. Instead, we have the promise that God is working in our suffering and that one day he's going to make it all right and that God can be trusted. God can be trusted. Remember how we heard it? We have history with God. We remember what he is like. And even though we don't know the future, we can trust 
even the dark and bitter providences of God because we're well acquainted with his ways. We've seen how he has acted in history and how he works in the past. We know what he is like. So when things go dark, we're not left groping without an idea because we know we've seen him and his character in the light. As a church, we are we're looking on with horror and fear and concern and anxiety and compassion as we watch Emma and, and the Herod family suffer. We're watching them pass through the darkest days of their lives. And Pastor Mark and his family, I believe, are modeling for us as a church what it looks like to suffer with confidence in God. I'm so thankful for our pastor, the example that he sets for us. That even in the face of great uncertainty, when his daughter's hooked up to a breathing tube, the Herods are banking on God. In a text message that he sent me earlier this week, Mark wrote these words, and I'll quote. We know that God is working, even in our hurt and fear. We know that God is at work and that he's faithful. It's really easy to say up here. It's really hard to say in the ICU. He says it in the ICU. God's working, and he works through suffering. So churches, we watch our pastors, we watch his family suffer, and as we suffer alongside them, and as we suffer in all of our circumstances, whether they're big or small, let's honor God by trusting and by remembering we've seen what he's like in the light and in the days of brightness and sunshine, so that when it grows dark, that we'll call to him, and we won't think he has abandoned us. God uses suffering to get our attention and to change, to change us. But we've also seen that no change in the Christian life comes without effort. So if I could offer a fourth observation, we've seen that the Christian life takes a lot of effort, a lot of effort. No one stumbles into Christian maturity. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds his readers, he exhorts them, he says, make every effort to grow in holiness. First, uh, 2 Peter 1, 5 says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother affection, and brotherly affection with love. Church, we're reminded that we do not coast into heaven on autopilot. The Christian life is a life of labor a life of extreme effort. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it reminds us that we are to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Church, my fear is that we have forgotten that Christians are called to make great efforts to achieve holiness. Great striving is necessary. We're called to work hard at our relationships. They're not easy. We have to work at it. So how hard are you working in your walk with the Lord? How much spiritual sweat did you 
work at this week? How much did you produce? Did you strive and strain towards new heights in your walk with the Lord this week? Or were you coasting? Are you just sitting around and assuming that it will happen or that it's not an issue? Maturity in the Christian life is not like hitting the lottery and waking up rich one day. The Christian life is a life of day after day, intentional, purposeful, planned work. It's effort. I hate to bring this up right after Thanksgiving, but put on my pants this morning. I was reminded that we know what it requires to lose weight, right? We all understand what it takes to, to lose weight. You could join every gym in Johnson City and not lose a single pound without putting in the work. Many followers of Christ have joined the gym, but don't put in the work. And so they remain without transformed lives. And so even though they may have been believers for decades, they have very little godliness to show for a lifetime of walking with Christ. That's called a wasted life. So let me ask you this morning, what is your plan? What's your plan for growing in your walk with the Lord? Are you clear on how you're going to get there? Or are you just kind of hoping you find it, stumble into it? Maybe you'll wake up more holy. What's your plan? Do you know your problem areas? What's your plan for Bible reading? Are you struggling with some sin? How are you going to attack it? What are you going to do, right? How, how, what are you going to do? Guys, are you struggling to have devotions with your family? Are you struggling to pray with your wife? What's the plan? Help me. Let me see it. What's, what's going on? What's your battle plan for fighting sin and pursuing the Lord? Are you going to finally give up some football? Are you going to rearrange your schedule? What, what are you going to do? Some of us have failed. Many of us perhaps have failed to make significant progress in our walks with the Lord because we won't make a plan and we won't put in the work. But the Christian life is a life that requires effort. It's grace-filled effort, yes, but it's effort nonetheless. A fifth thing that we have seen, and a final thing, is that transparent relationships are critical to growing in Christ. Transparent relationships are critical, I would say necessary, for growing in Christ. One of the main lessons that we saw last week was that God is not just concerned with our little personal, holy, private lives, but he's intensely concerned about our relationships. One of the reasons for this, I think there's many, but one is that in, just like in our suffering, God intends to use our relationships as a tool to transform us. That spouse, that child, that annoying Sunday school member, right? That, that person that you're sitting near, that person is intended by God to be a tool, an instrument for change in your life. Think about it like this. We've already seen that brokenness or humility is the key to unleashing the power and the grace of God in, in our lives. So God's intention for the church, and what's the church? The church is just a group of relationships. It's a group of uh, intentional Christian relationships. God's intention for the church is that we be knit together through a series of meaningful, transparent relationships to help keep us humble and to push us, to, to propel us towards Christian growth. Yet for some of us here, we may have been here for years and we've got friends, we've got relationships here, but they're not meaningful. They're not, they have nothing to do with our walks with 
with the Lord. Many of us have been part of this church for years, but have never opened up to another Christian about where we are in our walks with the Lord. If that's you, if that's not a regular part of your life, you're, you're, you're stunting your growth and you're living in disobedience to the Lord. Here's how this works. Let me try to explain it quickly like this. Our sinful tendency is to be more concerned with what other people think than what God thinks. Right? We can see each other, but we can't see God. So we're more concerned with what our neighbors think than what God thinks. And this is the barrier for spiritually meaning relationships. One way to put this the way we talked about it last week is that we wear masks, right? Just like the Greek actors. We, would, we put on a, a mask that intentionally covers up our spiritual condition with a presentation of somebody else, a person that we are not, right? It's, we cover our spiritual condition. We may say the right things. We may do the right things. We may talk the talk and walk the walk to keep up appearances, but we don't really let anybody know what's going on. When we struggle with sin, we struggle alone. Perhaps even if we confess, we don't confess to others. We just confess to God. We don't let anyone in. We don't want anyone to know who we really are. But God has built the church for spiritual accountability. This is a primary tool in your life to be used for your Christian growth, but it doesn't work by coming in, sitting down, and leaving. It doesn't work. There's no benefit there. God has called us to live lives that are mixed together. The Christian life, the Christian body, we're a body. The reason we're suffering with the heritage is because we're a part of the body. We're a hand and they're an arm, and when the hand hurts, the arm feels it. Right? We're connected together. And so when you live isolated from the body, you cut yourself off from nourishment and vital nutrients and oxygen. God intends for us to be connected. And when we refuse to let anyone know what's going on in our life, the cause is one thing, pride. Pride. Pride is the only thing that keeps us from actually getting to know what's going on in others' lives and sharing our own lives. It's what keeps us from growing in our walks with the Lord. Because you can't be transparent and broken before God and not transparent and broken before people. This is how God intends for it to be. So we don't really have the option of whether or not we're going to be involved in the lives of other believers. And that's the point of the church. And we're going to conclude our service a little bit differently today. I told you, you have this index card, and, and you, sh you should have already written one thing down on it. And so instead of our traditional invitation time, I want to give you a chance to respond in another way, in, a, in, a, in an even more concrete way. So if you'll take your card, take it back up. You don't have to show it to your neighbor. You don't have to, you don't, don't be peeking. You should have already written one word that describes an area that you may be struggling with in your life. An area that you may be resisting obedience to the Lord. Something you're struggling to surrender. Well, I want you to write one more thing down. I want you to write down the initials of one of the closest friends that you have in this church. It needs to be someone who's here that's part of it. They don't have to be in this service, but someone who's at this church, perhaps one of the closest people in your life. And if you don't have anyone to write down, if you're thinking, I don't know who, that means that you're disconnected from the life of our church. You may be here all the time, but you're not letting yourself, you're not letting your life overlap with others. So just write down the initials of 
of, of one or two folks that, that, you're, that you're close to. And in a moment, we're going to, we're going to sing a song of, of response. And, and as we do that, I want, I want to invite you to stay seated during, during that song. What I'd like to ask you to do is to prayerfully consider that as we sing, go before the Lord. Ask him to reveal to you what is the area of your life that you need to include someone else in. Share with them the struggle of obedience. Share with them one of the sin struggles in your life or perhaps a burden that you're carrying and you've been too afraid to share with someone else. Tell them what the Lord is doing in your life. Tell them what you learned during life action and how you need to grow. Tell them how God has worked in your heart, perhaps even during this service today. And so as we come, I'm going to ask the musicians to come, and, and as we sing, I'd like to ask you to pray and to answer one more question. Are you willing to contact this person this week and to share with them what's going on in your life? It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be in, in all the detail in the world, but just to contact them and tell them where you're struggling, what God's doing, and how they can pray. Ask them to pray with you, and then perhaps ask them, how can you pray with them? If you don't have anybody to call or anybody to contact, I want to encourage you to look for ways to be plugged into the life of this church. We have all sorts of ministries that are going on here that are not just in a big service like this. So I would encourage you, perhaps you need to approach someone else. So let me encourage you, bow your head now and, 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 and do business with the Lord and consider if you're willing to stay, take a step of faith and move towards another person as we sing. praying that the Lord will give you courage to talk with someone and to share what God's doing in your life. I'd like to ask uh, Richard Smith, who is our deacon of the week, to come and offer our offertory prayer this morning and for the ushers to come forward after that. As we come in this house, it's a joy we can lift up the name of Christ, our Father, who sees all, knows all, and knows our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the many prayers for Emma and the family, and also thank you for this gift that you give us, that we can joyfully give it back to you, that you can take it, spread the word, your word, and upbuild your kingdom. These things we ask in your most precious name. Jesus Christ, amen. 